0: It's no longer enough to learn by doing the job. For supply chain professionals today, formal training is a must. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Training can take many forms, drawing on both internal and external resources, and employing a variety of techniques. What's consistent is the importance of the exercise, at a time when supply chain is becoming a critical component of corporate profitability. The skills required of a supply chain professional today are broader and deeper than ever before. An individual might end up performing multiple supply chain-related tasks over a career instead of being stuck in just one area. And the job can only get more complex. Today, I'm speaking with Jim Barnes, Managing Director for ISM Services at the Institute for Supply Management. He'll talk about how supply chain management is evolving from a tactical to a strategic discipline and how training techniques are changing accordingly. We'll touch on issues such as training boot camps, continuing education, virtual learning, mentoring, and the value of professional certifications and we'll get a sense of what kinds of training work best. So here is my conversation with Jim Barnes. Jim Barnes, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You know, Jim, in the old way, if somebody wanted to enter the business world for a job in supply chain or any way else, they may or may not go to college and get some kind of a degree, and, and then they get the job, and then from then on, it's uh, learned by doing. It's on-the-job training, and that was all it was required. I mean, what's wrong with that way of training an employee in today's environment of supply chain?
1: I think you're absolutely right, and supply chain in particular. um, It was one of those careers that was less professionalized, I would say, than some others that are out there. And the professionalization of supply management jobs, whether it's supply chain or procurement, has been on the upswing for a while now. And, And the real reason being that supply chain has become much more of a critical component of making a profit than it was in the past. And so having more than just tacit knowledge, of on-the-job training is required in order to execute well.
0: In fact, unlike in the past, a person entering the world of supply chain or a job like that these days might actually be doing it on purpose, where it seems like in the past, most people who ended up in supply chain jobs didn't start that way or had no awareness of even the existence of supply chain as a profession. Is that your impression as well?
1: Uh, yeah, you can see that for sure, Bob. In the programs that are out there now, fifteen, twenty years ago, there might have been a couple of supply chain programs at Arizona State University and Michigan State University, and now you've got uh, many, many more that are out there. You have young professionals pursuing. Supply chain degrees, both bachelor's and master's degrees, where that was almost unheard of uh, not too long ago, and so you you wind up with attendees in training, uh, such as the training we do, that are younger that actually have a lot more of an educational background in the subject matter that we're talking about and, and frankly, grasp it more quickly and expect more of an impact that they're going to make in their jobs than would have been the case 20, 30 years ago.
0: On top of which, the skills that are needed of a supply chain professional, both at entry level and beyond, are quite different from what they used to be. What do we require in a supply chain professional today that we might not have asked for in the past?
1: Uh, That's very true. The generalization is that the roles that people are playing in supply chain are less tactical and more strategic. That's the general comment that could be made around it. In reality, the types of skills are similar to the ISM mastery model core competencies that we have. So, we have added things like business acumen, certain analysis like financial analysis, understanding of sales and operations planning, understanding of systems, in addition to some of the core things that supply chain professionals had to know in the past around inventory management, materials management, logistics, category management, and sourcing. So it's become a broader skill set that's required and more strategically focused than it has been in the past, in part because of the automation of some of the tactical tasks that were being performed for many years.
0: And as you indicated, the need for analytics these days is a much more numbers-oriented type of profession now, Not no longer kind of a seat-of-the-pants type of job, right?
1: That is right. Yeah, When we do training in strategic supply management, we spend a lot of time on the different analyses that can be performed, whether it's market analysis, cost and price analysis, uh, financial analysis of suppliers. And we often get feedback that those are very valuable lessons and tools and techniques that, that are learned because they can apply them directly to the job now. Whereas in the past, if you were performing a um, more tactical role, uh, let's say, processing requisitions to into POs, that kind of thing, then you really weren't doing the kind of analysis that you can do today. And sometimes you'll find companies where they haven't really created those more strategic roles in a very defined way. So even though somebody is more senior, they're still doing a lot of tactical work and they need to, to be able to separate themselves, apply those kinds of tools and techniques in order to create a lot more value in the supply chain.
0: Is it your impression that companies today are up to speed on the need for a new era and a new new attention paid to, to training, especially in supply chain, or are they behind the curve on that?
1: I think, Bob, it's becoming more universal, that there is a big shift going on. Supply chains getting more focused. The skill set has to be more strategic and provide more value. And one of the main impact areas on that, and, and is really market forces. So when you look at the growth rate of GDP and the particular struggles of certain industries like oil and gas currently, you're not going to increase your profit, uh, your bottom line profit, by growing sales 10%. In fact, you're, you're in some cases you're lucky to hang on to the kind of revenue you've had. Um, So where are you going to improve your profit? It's going to be in the supply chain. It's going to be through efficiencies. It's going to be through better relationships with your suppliers and innovating. So those are the things that companies are investing in, and that's why training is becoming much more important.
0: All right. I want to talk about corporate in-house training before we get to other types, and both from the sense of new entrance to the job as well as continuing education, Give me a sense of what types of programs are important these days in order to implement in in companies. How um, intense should they be? What type of resources should companies be expending on training?
1: Well, it's it's interesting. I think when they're facing uh, a tough time, the first thing companies will do is actually take away money from training and focus on reductions in forces and, and other things that can be immediate benefits to the bottom line. But then they soon recognize, probably within six months to a year, that they do need to invest in the training internally. Um, and that can come in many forms. It can be simply training so that people understand the organization itself, who's doing what where to go with to, to engage stakeholders, how the operations actually are trying to improve their efficiency so that you can be on board with that. Um, and then there's the external opportunities for training, of, like what ISM does, around training people for specific tools and techniques that they can apply in order to get an ROI on that training. And so that, that's very important as well.
0: Again, you know, on-the-job training, actually doing... Doing the work is has always been an excellent way of learning how to do it. But there's also the question of do you take employees off the job? Do you put them in educational situations that require them to be away from their day-to-day job in order to be able to bring them back more effective than ever? Or are you trying to train them at, during the nine-to-five cycles? Or how are you incorporating training into the, into the business day?
1: That's a good question, Bob. So uh, there's a concept called 70-20-10. So 70% of the learning that happens, especially in supply chain jobs, is on the job. It was 100% many years ago. Um, but today the, the goal is 70% of it's on the job, applying it, just doing it. 20% is through internal mentoring, coaching that happens. And so now we're up to 90% of, of the effort. About 10% is external and that 10% external is important in order to give people stretch areas where they can they can learn new skills and bring in experts that may not reside within the four walls of the business so so 70% is on the job 20% is through coaching mentoring managing and 10% should be more of that expertise driven external environment, and that can happen in many different modes.
0: To what extent should a company depend on and develop internal training capabilities versus relying on outside training assistance such as that from ISM or other consulting organizations? How much should be in-house versus out? We have
1: to have some in-house capabilities. Um, it, a lot of it depends upon the size of the company, so uh, we work with companies that are sort of mid sized sort of $500 million to maybe a billion and a half, and those companies may not have the scale to have internal resources. And so when we're teaching them to fish as it is rather than fishing for them in workshops, that's, that's an effective way to help get change to happen to upscale people. If you're, we're talking about multibillion-dollar companies that are global, they have their own capabilities for sure, and they should have their own capabilities. And uh, often they have supply chain academies that have playbooks and the, the right way to do things, if you will. We do get involved helping them as well, but it is more on a spot basis or helping them with the overall roadmaps. They have their internal capabilities. If we're doing training, often it turns into train-the-trainer type of uh, work for us, and they can then go on their own and do their own training internally.
0: Mentoring has only always been a very important part of training within organizations, although not necessarily in a formal kind of structural way. Is there a way to formalize mentoring in addition to the, the, uh, the more obvious type of training exercises?
1: I think formalizing it is okay if you're going to formalize it around objectives. So, for instance, if you provide training and you have action plans coming out of that training that are projects, and those projects require interfacing with other stakeholders in the company, and that mentor can help guide and navigate and open doors and also get feedback, then I think that kind of mentoring can be more formalized. I think I agree with you. I think Historically and probably more naturally, mentoring is a less formal thing and more just a natural interest people can take in each other.
0: Is there a way in which companies can follow up training by creating kind of a debriefing environment where the newly trained employee can offer feedback back to the trainers as to the effectiveness of their training programs, thereby allowing those training programs to evolve and improve?
1: Yes, absolutely. That That's a key ingredient to successful training. So if a company, for instance, has a boot camp they're doing around supply chain and it's a, a three-day affair, that should be a continuous in, improvement of project on its own. Um, it should constantly evolve both the content, the manner of training, and, and how it's being applied. So, yes, I think everybody should have the ability at the end of any training to give an evaluation, give the feedback, and have that feedback mean something to the program. To do otherwise is to to come up
0: short. You mentioned boot camp is an interesting concept. I'm wondering to what extent that is a literal versus a metaphorical concept. I mean, for instance, a new employee coming into into a company, should they be placed in a so-called boot camp environment immediately, or is that something that just comes along as needed?
1: Uh, When we've been involved in boot camps, it's taken both the new people and actually the people who are leaders as well in the same course. And the boot camp concept has been more a rigor application of the word rather than necessarily just new people. When you think of the military, it's obviously aimed toward those indoctrinated newly into it. It's sort of both, if you will. It's folks that probably need to change have been around for a while, as well as those who are new to it and maybe more flexible to the change, even. So the boot camp has more to do with rigor. There's one program we do where um, we start off the boot camp and midway through the first day, so people can travel in, and we work till eleven o'clock at night, and then there's homework after that. So it is it is literally one of those pain points, if you will, that you get whenever you go through a boot camp.
0: Talk about the importance of cross-training within the organization. Of course, it's possible for an individual to get stuck in a particular part of supply chain management forever. Is it important for a company to make sure that doesn't happen, to actually mandate that employees move around, that they're trained in other departments beyond where they're comfortable?
1: We're seeing a lot of that folks are moving from one part of the organization to another to gain experience. In some cases, it's done excessively, I would think, or I've observed. And in other cases, it needs to happen more. So it is a bit of a balance to do that. The other aspect of that that's important, Bob, is that when training occurs in one part of the supply chain, it's a good idea to spread the word of that training to other functions. And what I mean by that is that when you're trying to make change happen and you're trying to get momentum around, let's say, procurement doing a better job with their strategic suppliers, They may need to interface with engineering, with product management, with the operation shop floor, and be able to get their assistance in specification changes, a process change, in order to improve the supplier performance. And so it's really important to have at least a taste of that training or the meaningfulness of that training communicated to other functions as well
0: at least to give each function an understanding of where other functions are coming from so that they know uh, they're not just thinking in their own minds about what they need in order to improve the organization. They actually understand what's required of, of other functions or other so-called silos, right?
1: That's exactly true, Bob. And one of the exercises that is often performed is a RACI, so a responsible, accountable, consultant form exercise. That's a diagram of who's responsible for different situations that come up and who's accountable for it and who needs to be informed or consulted. And that's often a very interesting part of a training we do in terms of the, the arguments that can come about about who's really responsible for something. And it points out, how important it is to heighten the communication and to recognize the person or the role that's truly accountable for something to get done.
0: In the area of continuing education, how important is it and what do companies need to do in order to make sure that veteran employees are being continually trained in either new skills or being able to handle new concepts and requirements that that develop as supply chains mature?
1: That's very important in supply chain because uh, the supply chain needs have been changing constantly for, in particular, the past 15, 20 years in accelerating the strategic nature of it, the ability to work with others within the the company, within the enterprise, and get things done, uh, requires certain skills that may not have been required when someone started 20 years ago in supply chain. So it is it is critical that the folks who've been around for a while also go through the training. And the other aspect of that, too, is that if you have more experienced people in the training with younger, newer people, they can mentor them, they can tell the war stories, they can actually contribute a lot to a workshop as well as learn.
0: What about professional certifications such as those maintained by ISM? I'm thinking specifically of the Certified Professional in Supply Management, CPSM, Certified Professional in Supplier Diversity, CPSD, what are these certifications and what is the value of acquiring them?
1: The value is to the individual actually is very tangible because we do a salary survey every year and the people with their CPSMs and CPSDs have about a 9% higher salary than those without it. So it does pay off, literally. But the continual learning that you mentioned earlier, the um education that that is sort of lifelong, people who get their CPSM, people who have their CPSD are more committed to that, in part because they've got to get continuing education hours, CHs, in order to keep their certification. So it's it's a push-pull kind of thing where they're definitely more aimed toward, they have more of an aim toward uh, lifelong learning, uh, and it's reinforced by the fact that they have to get it in order to keep the certification. The certification itself is an exam or there are three exams for the CPSM and additional exams for the CPSD. And proving that you can pass those exams and apply the knowledge is something that's recognized more and more by companies and being supported more and more by companies, especially those companies that are corporate program members of ISM.
0: More and more training programs these days are being delivered through the internet, through video, through virtual environments. What are the pluses and minuses of that training media?
1: That's a really good area to talk about, Bob, because there's been a lot of advancement lately in the use of the web for training that kind of thing. What we do is we're we're actually better known for the on site training you know the old fashioned on site training. What we've made an investment in and what we're doing more these days is is what we would call virtual learning, what most people I think call our virtual learning now. So virtual learning doesn't take people out of their jobs for a day or three days or whatever it would be. It's a two-hour kind of episodic training on a topic. There's homework in between the sessions. There's a live instructor there who's got a whiteboard, who's talking through problems, gives people exercises. You can even put individuals in the training into virtual rooms to work on problems together and come back with answers. So it's it's the next best thing to on-site face-to-face training. And it does work quite well. Um, Of course, it has its limitations, but it does work quite well.
0: You say it has its limitations. What are the drawbacks of not being in the classroom face-to-face with the instructor, though?
1: The drawbacks have to do with um, you can't do virtual learning for two or three days straight, so you don't get that continuum of conversation going. It stops and starts. So that's a little more difficult. You have to kind of catch up every time the other thing about virtual learning is you' you're not there in person so the emotion of being there in person is missing and then and, and when you're training that has some value in doing that the other thing is you can run into technical difficulties you, you can have the video or the audio fail or, or have difficulties or people are using different equipment that are coming into the, the web session and it may be on their side that it's failing so uh, it isn't a perfect world for sure but when you're getting it right and it is and you can hear them and see them and it's working well, it is a lot better than individual e-learning online courses that are. are their value is really being asynchronous. And it's uh, the next best thing to be on site.
0: So we said that there are so many qualities today that a supply chain professional must possess. What, in your opinion, are the biggest skill gaps you see out there right now?
1: Well, I would have to turn to your seeing a lot of demand for the training we do. This may sound quite basic, but it's really understanding cost. For supply chain professionals, especially those on the procurement side, they've been pushing suppliers on price, asking for a better price since the beginning of time. And really understanding cost, getting your arms around cost, understanding the concept and the application of total cost of ownership is something that is becoming a much more common objective and something that a gap, if you will, that is trying to be—they're trying to close. It even leads into should cost. What should the cost be, and what could it be for the product or, or whatever's being produced? So that—that's one major area. The other area that's always been popular and continues to be is negotiation. Negotiation skills. As I was telling a group this week, negotiation is an art. It's not a science. It takes practice. So getting more exposure to negotiation training and role-playing is something that's in high demand.
0: Well, Jim Barnes, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today to tell us about what's needed out there in terms of training today's and tomorrow's supply chain professionals as well as the work of ISM toward that end. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Bob. I've enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Jim Barnes of the Institute for Supply Management, talking about the evolution of supply chain training. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.